By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So this is part two of our 10 ways to improve your game in 2024. And I'm realizing- Number 34. Yeah. Maybe this title will end up being misleading. We're not entirely sure we're going to get to 10. How many did we get to in the first one? Five? I'm not even sure. I lost. We did goal setting- yeah, did. swing mechanics. Oh, I've written something else there. Yeah, swing mechanics, skill <laughs> development, Three, psychology. Four. Well, that uh, was a, that was an off script question. It was the psychology one? Right. Speed, but we did it. fitness. I think we did that right. Speed fitness yeah. and then practice improvements. So six. Yeah. So we'll easily okay. get the ten. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this is part two of that discussion. Not that there is a order to this, but if you didn't listen to episode one, you could. Either go back to that now or do it after this episode. I don't think it'll really matter. As always with this show, most of our information is evergreen. I don't think we've done one episode that's really based on anything like other than me rambling about some of my tournaments here and there. I don't think we've ever done any time-based stuff. So this is mostly an evergreen podcast. Just a reminder to everyone. What are we going to start with? Equipment checks? What are you doing this year to upgrade your equipment? At the end of every season or off season, those are the times where you can start looking at your equipment. I think some things you could double check, like over the years, I've had Woody Lashin from Pete's Golf, who again has done all of our episodes on club fitting. You can go back to those for more in-depth stuff on club fitting. But you know, I've brought my clubs there several times just to check in with them. We've looked at the lie angle on my irons. 
those can change over time depending on what your irons are, are made of. Mine haven't shifted too much. My wedges actually, the lofts have, if you keep your wedges long enough, the loft could change, but I swap those out every year. So if you have a reputable club fitter you can work with, I've checked in with my irons in general asking, what is, is there anything better? I've had the same set of irons for seven years now. We haven't found anything better, so we don't make a switch. So the question I always ask Woody is, is what I've got still good or is there something that you know of, a new technology or design that could accommodate my impact tendencies that will make me better? In the past, we got me a new five wood. This tailor made five wood finally was a fairway wood I could get in the air. For years, we've been looking for one. I had a Tylus one before that in Callaway. Not to say one brand is better than the other, but we finally found the five wood that worked for me. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a good idea if you want to go that route to, if you have a club fitter, check in on some basic stuff. And then if you could find a new driver, a wedge, a putter that gives you tangibly better gains, then go for it. But don't just buy stuff just to buy it. I still have my putter for six or seven years now. I don't know if I'll ever change it. I've had the same irons for a long time. Driver, I don't swap out that often. So if I'm going to make a change, it's got to be for a good reason. But yeah, I think if you're inclined to do so, checking in with your equipment is important. Yeah, lots of people don't realize that things like lofts and even lie angles change. If you hit clubs over and over again, or as they're getting beaten around in the in the boot of your car, trunk of your car. There we go. I was looking for the American term. <laughs> the boot, the boot of the your car, the back okay. of your car. You know, they're getting beaten around there. They can change lies. I often, when I'm waiting on the tee as well, I'll just lean on my club, which I really shouldn't do. That's probably slowly bending the lie over time. So yeah, just getting those checked is important. And something I hate doing, but I really need to do right now is get my grips changed. They're getting oh, a little yeah. bit shiny. I hate it. It sucks, but every time I get them regripped twice a year now, and every time I do it, twice you're like, year, well, "Why haven't I done this earlier?" Oh, you enjoy it. I hate it. Oh, it I love changes it. I mean, the feel of the club for me completely. But then I don't have to grip it as tightly. I feel like my my grip pressure can be lighter. I play these Golf Pride multi compound ones, so that's the one that has like two different surfaces on it. And I love them, but they do wear out fairly quickly. And the clubs I practice with the most, they wear out even like my lob wedge is what I warm up with. So like my lob wedge and driver go the fastest I've found. And it just drives me nuts because I have to apply more grip pressure when the grips are worn out versus when they're more like kind of tacky. I don't like that. So I guess I'm the opposite of you. I love having tacky grips, but the problem for me is I have the Golf Pride aligned, so they have a spine in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. That helps me really feel where the club face is so I can feel any really small changes in my hand. But the problem is when you put a new grip on, they're never aligned exactly like they were before, no matter how good the the (laughs) grip fitter was. I did see that model and that is what worried me because I have that with my putter actually, that my... I have like a hexagonal putter grip and I have a Seymour putter. And if it's not lined up just properly with the Seymour because it has an alignment system. So like the few times I've had it regripped, I've gone with the person doing it and like been over their shoulder. And before the glue set in, I'm like, let me hold this to make sure it's aligned properly. Because if it's off, that'll screw me up big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a disadvantage. I love those grips. I wouldn't go to anything different because... Once they're on and once I get used to them, 
they really helped me feel the club face but changing it then changes the feel a lot so yeah it's, mm. it, i'll see maybe i just replace the seven iron and hope for the best <laughs> <laughs> another thought i had for equipment checkups is sometimes you know if you're listening to this podcast and let's say you've done speed training or you've changed how you deliver the club you might have different needs for your equipment that doesn't mean you might need a new set of irons but for example I had to get my irons flattened years ago because they were so upright at impact. If anything, I'm probably delivering it toe down now, which is fine, but that's an adjustment that could be made. Let's say you boosted your swing speed. Not that swing speed and shafts are a direct correlation with like how stiff, because we again, go to our episodes of Woody, that, that can be a myth sometimes. But if you're changing your body, you're stronger, you're more explosive, you're applying more force to the club, you might need an entirely different shaft on your driver or your irons. You might need different weight. So there's some adjustments that can be made if your swing materially changes. If it's a technique change, if it's a swing speed change, your tempo even. Again, I don't want to send people out on this goose chase to just spend a ton of money on clubs. But you know, if you went from 100 miles an hour to 110... You might need a new shaft. That's something else to consider is that if you've gone through any type of massive change in how you deliver the golf club, that might change your needs. Yeah, and I suppose it depends what you're doing with your swing as well. You know, as we start approaching the new season, you're looking to optimize what you have. I know there's still time left before the new season starts. So one of the best times to change the shaft or maybe lie angles would be a better example of this so say for example someone's an early extender and they come in with lots of upright club shaft impact and so they need really upright clubs well if they're working against that tendency over the winter say they want to make a swing change and they want to get more squatted rotated it may be better right at the end of the season to switch to a flatter lie angle on your club in order to help with the swing change. Because one thing you don't want is when you're trying to make a swing change is to have your equipment fighting that swing change. You know, lots of people early extend and jump up and stand tall and early release at impact because their clubs are so upright these days. And so they're just trying to fit around that. That's what I used to do as a junior. You know, that's one of the reasons why I have that movement pattern. So yeah, at the very end of the season, if we could go back in time, it's probably a good time to change your lie angles and make it good for what you want your swing to do. And then as you approach the start of the new season, you start to fit the clubs around what you are doing at the moment, you know, getting the best out of what you're doing right now. Fair enough. Yeah, I think we've mentioned lie angle a few times now, and that is one of the most important things to get right. As loft increases, lie angle becomes more important. So it's incredibly important on your wedges, your irons, not so much on your hybrids, fairway woods and driver. It has a influence, but not nearly as much as it would on those higher lofted clubs. Most drivers, you can't even adjust the lie angle. They'll do it in a tour fitting scenario and snap a few heads for a few PGA Tour pros, but not for normal golfers. So yeah, lie angle is super important. We have multiple episodes on that, so you can go back in the catalog. 
jump on a launch monitor at the start of the season as well, or even now, just to check things like your driver, the launch and spin rates of the ball. Because those can change if the last time you checked it was last year or when you got fit in the middle of the season, things can change. Maybe you're hitting it slightly different. Maybe you're delivering the club slightly different. Maybe your swing speed has changed. And so, yeah, getting that launch angle and spin rate optimized, which could be a ball change. You know, we've got who's I'm sure that'll be a separate topic, right? Let's throw it in here. I see it on the list. You've got ball checking your golf ball on here. So that's a part of equipment. So let's throw that in. Yeah. So looking at the spin rate and getting that's the big one for me that I always look at is spin rate. I want usually to keep it as low as possible. I tend to be quite a high spin player and with a driver, especially I launch the ball quite high. And so that suits a low spin. High launch and low spin is good for me. So I'm always trying to find the ball with the lowest spin rate. Yeah, I think that episode we did with Marty Jertson and Chris Brody from Ping, who Ping runs ballfitting.com, which is that fitting system. We did an episode with them. And I kind of defer to that at this point because they do such First of all, Ping doesn't manufacture a golf ball, so this is like completely non-biased, which is good. But they just do like crazy testing of every single golf ball on the market, and they're tracking it downrange in neutral conditions without any wind because what I learned from that episode was that the launch monitor numbers tell some of the story, but not all of the story. So you can plug in all of your launch monitor numbers with like your seven iron and your driver, the altitude you play, the conditions you play in, and a few other things. And it kind of spits out some balls that you should play. It's funny at the end of, I'm pretty particular, like I said, with equipment, I don't like to change unless I have to. I've been playing the Snell MTBX ball for many years and they discontinued it in 2023. And at the end of the season, I finally was running out of my stock of balls. And that's when I had qualified for the US Mid-Am. So I kind of freaked out and I'm like, I can't go to that tournament or play my club championship at the end of the year with a different golf ball. So I put it on Twitter. I was running out of balls. This shows you how nice people are. I got like 12 dozen of these balls sent to me from Snell and from other people who kind of had excess stock. I'll use that ball through 2024 because it has USGA conformity through then, but I'll probably defer to what the ball fitting engine says next for me, which I think it liked one of the Bridgestone balls for me and my tendencies. But yeah, I mean, it costs like 35 or 40 bucks, which is how much a dozen premium golf balls would cost. And you just kind of throw your numbers in there and it tells you what you should play rather than just kind of guessing or, or worse, relying on marketing claims. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's worth it because like you said, the launch monitors don't pick up everything. It looks at the initial launch spin and ball speed, which are really, really important, but it doesn't it can't look at the aerodynamics downrange. So a launch monitor is going to guess those algorithmically. Whereas the Marty Jertson stuff, what's it called again? The the website? Ball fitting. Isn't it ball namic? It's ball namic, but I think ball the ball fitting. Because they've done all the real tests, which not only looks at the launch conditions of the ball, but actually looks at how far did it actually fly down the range. So yeah, the URL is ball fitting. The name of the product is Ballnamic. And just to be clear, they're not paying us to say this. We're giving them a free ad. We also gave Golf Pride a free ad earlier too with our, you know, we, me and Adam confessed to both playing Golf Pride grips. So two free ads starting off the episode. Great. But no, for real, that was, I'm happy to do it because they did 
spent a lot of time with us on that episode and, and shared a lot of great knowledge. But yeah, if you're playing the wrong golf ball, you're making golf harder for yourself. Just like if you were playing irons that were too upright for you or a driver with a shaft that didn't have enough flex in it or was too light or too heavy, you're going to make golf harder for yourself. So I always think that I can never prove this, but I always say equipment is like 10 to 15% of your scoring. That's just my feel on it. And yeah, you want to get all this stuff dialed in properly. And we now have the tools to do it without spending a crazy amount of money. Yeah. You can even look, use stats as well on course to be able to determine a lot of the club fit. You know, I have two different drivers. I have a ping and a tailor-made. Yeah, sometimes I'll switch out. I use Arcos at the moment. So I, I switch out the little thing at the end, the sensor. I'll tag it on my Arco stat so I can see at the end of maybe a month of trying each one which driver is better for me. I find that the here's a free advert for ping. His, uh, the ping one is much better for me. I hit fewer wild shots with it. And even though I feel like it doesn't go as far, the stats don't show that. If I was just going on intuition, I would say the tailor-made was going farther, but doesn't seem to be the case. Is that a segue into our next topic for collecting stats? It is, yeah, exactly. What are you using to collect stats? I've been kind of a guinea pig over the years. So at the moment, I've been a free agent, but I've tried so many of them. I get this question a lot, so I'll just give my overview of the market. I think you have three main options. If you want to go the option of having the stats passively collected for you, I think Arcos and ShotScope are the two best options. And then there's another huge market now of apps that can kind of, I wouldn't say they automatically track them for you because you're using your cell phone, but they've made the input more easier to do. So you've got apps like Mark Brody's app, Golf Metrics, Scott Fawcett's app, Decade that does this. I'm literally going to blank on all of the other apps that are out there. Swing you. There's so many of them now and they're all quite good. So that's like the third option is to track them through the app. My quick spiel on Arcos versus ShotScope, I think they're both awesome. The main difference would be, I think ShotScope, you're going to get some type of GPS device from them as well or a rangefinder. So I think the the advantage of going with ShotScope is, do you want a GPS watch or a rangefinder with GPS that will also collect your stats? The dashboard's great, does the strokes gained, all that stuff, and it has non, no ongoing fees. Arcos, just as good, maybe... I don't know if their stat dashboard is more robust. It's awesome too, but they do have ongoing fees like that. And you're not getting some type of GPS device. Like some people don't care, but I know you like it because it integrates with the Apple Watch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I'm going to mention that I'm working with an app company at the moment and we'll be re- releasing that later on in the year, but I'm consulting for them on the design of the app and what things to actually track. So they're important metrics that I want to track as a coach. I want my players. I need to see that there's other apps are just not tracking, you know, things like when you miss a shot, was it club selection or was it a bad strike? Because those are important to know, you know, Arcos and shot scope, things like that. They tell you whether a shot was short or long left or right, but they don't tell you why. I need to know those things. Was it a misjudge of wind, misjudge of strategy? Was it a poor strike? Was it toe, heel? Was it fat, thin? And so this will dive much more in detail on that. At the moment, I've been doing that through pen and paper with players, which is really cumbersome, obviously, but I tend to do it in my own 
after a round as well. I just mentally go through, but I know not everybody has the ability to memorize all of their shots that they played on the course, whereas for some reason, us low handicappers have no issue doing that, right? Remember, <laughs> remember every single shot for some reason. Yeah. So I think overall, there is a ton of great options for collection at this point. Like they all have strokes gained. That wasn't the case three or four years ago. So yeah, those bigger apps slash Arcos, ShotScope are all awesome options. We've done a full episode on how to use stats effectively, but I think some of our main points were that those platforms are going to give you kind of like a nice overview. So you can quickly see, you know, if you're a 10 handicap, You can quickly see, well, how do I compare to a five handicap on strokes gained, whether it's off the tee approach shots, or even if it's approach shots 150 to 100 or 150 to 200 wedge play and putting. So you start to see like, okay, I am gaining strokes here, losing strokes here. And then you have to dig deeper. Why? Then you can go into like your shot patterns with your driver. Are you missing on one side? Are you not getting enough distance on some of them? With irons, are you consistently missing short and right? Is that a strike problem? Is that a target problem? So it's not going to do it for you, but I think it's a good mirror to hold up against your game so that a lot of the times I think are, as you said, (laughs) many people's fuzzy memories of their rounds and their golf game in general are not accurate. So some people think like, well, I'm a really crappy putter. And then if you actually tracked them all, you're like, well, wait a second, I'm actually gaining strokes against someone who's better than me. That that could be a game changer for you. Or you thought you might be a good iron player and you're not as good as you thought. So it's a great way to get a quick overview of your game. And then you've got to do some more detective work and dig deeper past the stroke scheme and your tendencies to eventually settle on target errors. Maybe they're mental errors. They could be our big three errors. You're not striking it well enough or you're closing the face down and missing a lot of targets to your left. can help you make better strategic decisions. I noticed when I first started tracking my stats that I was more accurate with my driver than I thought. So it gave me more confidence to use it. Start seeing how far you're hitting each club. That could be good for equipment. So yeah, there's a lot of benefits to tracking your stats and you can kind of choose how in-depth you want to go. I know some people are more inclined to do this stuff than others. Even on the case of practicing or tracking practice, lots of people don't do it. And talking about fuzzy memories, I can watch a pupil hit 10 shots. And at the end of those 10 shots, I'll ask them, what was the biggest issue in those 10 shots? And they don't know. Even if we're tracking it on shot by shot basis. So they hit a shot and they say, oh, that was a little out of the toe. Then they hit another one that was a little fat. At the end of 10 shots, I'll say, which error popped up more? They can't tell you. So just from a shot to shot basis, tracking our big three, certainly, especially on the, on the range, those are the main things that you're looking at. So tracking your impact patterns, looking at your shot patterns directionally as well. Lots of players hit a ball and ah, it's left and they, they're rolling the next one in before they even see it land. Whereas like quantifying it more, if you have the ability of using a launch monitor, great. If you don't have a system in the accuracy plan that can help you with directional tracking. There's another way as well, using Google Earth on the range. This is a little bit cumbersome, but I used to go to a, a local driving range that had lots of these different greens and I would go onto Google Earth and I would map out, you know, it was 20 yards between this target and this target and it's 30 yards between this target and this target. So when I'm back on that range hitting shots, I know exactly how far left or right I'm hitting. That is a great 
hack to set up kind of practice boundaries for yourself. Because again, you don't want to hit balls on the range to quote unquote over there. You want to have a bit more finite understanding of of where your ball is going relative to your target and how wide that is. And that can be important for tee shot dispersion. Like if you're hitting 20, 30 tee shots, kind of have this map out in your brain. Well, my dispersion was within 30, 40, 50 yards there. That's pretty damn good. So that that is a great hack is going on your practice range. The I'll give a quick shout out. The Rapsodo MLM has that functionality in it. Left so it right. can, well, it has a dispersion tracker on it. So when you right, nice. when you start your session, it shows exactly where you are on a map and then it kind of plots where all of your shots, you know, where estimated they went. So that's a nice visual representation that you would get on like a Foresight or a TrackMan or SkyTrack. Those are super powerful. I mean, me getting that visual plot of my dispersion with my SkyTrack four or five years ago, my driver was kind of like revolutionary for me. So yeah, that's all, whether it's practice or on-course stuff, these are ways to improve your game for sure. We'll have to check out some of the phone apps at some point. I don't know if you've done any testing on them, but I know there are phone apps that look at the initial ball flight and then determine where it goes from there. How, have yeah. you done any testing? No, I think there was, I had heard of one a few years ago, but I didn't test it myself. I kind of got some spotty reviews of it where it was kind of like using the phone as the launch monitor. But I could tell you that for a product like the MLM, it's using its own. So it's using both the camera's phone as well as like a piece of hardware to like cross-reference. And I think the newer one has a camera on it as well. But if you just use the phone itself, I don't know if that's enough to give you like yet. I mean, maybe in the next few years as the sensors and the cameras on these phones get better. I don't know, but I haven't seen a ton of options with phone only that are seem to be reliable. There's lots of ways you can just get distance feedback, you know, lots of cheaper launch monitors. What would be the cheapest one that provides a reasonable estimation of distance? The PRGR. That's been the one that has been, it's kind of like the no frills, crazy accurate. Like I've tested, people have tested it against TrackMan. You have it set up properly and it could see the ball enough. Like it's pretty damn good. But yeah, there's a, are we, are we bleeding into your feedback? I'm, I'm trying to go through our, uh, yeah, go on then. Let's go on to feedback. Oh, we got, so we got uh, launch, we launch monitors. We'll wrap up collecting stats just to button that up. In 2024, as the season starts for you, if you want to use one of the systems, that's a great idea. I don't see any downside to that. Especially the last point I'll make before we move to feedback is that if you are using ShotScope, Arcos, or some type of app and you have to manually go through each shot afterwards... Like that's a great exercise to do no matter what. Like I always tell people, like you have to review your rounds. You have to go through shots. What were you thinking about? How was your commitment level? How was your strategic decision? Like that's how you get ideas for practice and how to make better decisions on the course. So at the minimum, collecting your stats will force you to go through that process. And I think that's a great idea. All right, let's move on to feedback. So that's something we always talk about because you can't become a better ball striker or decision maker if you are not evaluating and collecting the proper feedback when you're hitting balls on the range, on the golf course, wherever. At some point, it's just paying attention to it as well. There's so many golfers don't. I mean, the ball is good enough feedback, right? The ball flight is... That's why the main thing for me is much technology as I've used over the years, 
the start direction, curvature, and trajectory of the golf ball are still, you know, my top guiding light because that's just the truth of what happened at impact if you know how to read that ball flight. And I think, you know, we've given a ton of resources on this show in both of our books, practice manual, four foundations of golf. You know, when you just know what to look for in your ball flight and what you're feeling in your hands, that's most of it. The launch monitor enhances that knowledge. The divot board, which we'll talk about, that enhances that knowledge. But yeah, I mean, the ball flight, the ball don't lie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, after every single shot, I'm always asking myself, where was that toe and heel? That's always my first question. If something goes wrong, it's usually one of those. You can never get too good at that, guys. Honestly, I'm still every single day yeah. calibrating that centered strike. And when I strike it on the center, it seems like everything else kind of falls into place, even directionally tends to fall into place as well. Then the next question I'm asking, whether it was toe or heel, after that, I'm asking, was it high or low on the face or fat or thin? If it's too high in the face, that's a proxy for fat shots. Too low on the face is obviously thin shots. And so then I can adjust that. Once those two things are in place, then I'm looking at the ball flight directionally. And you can tell a lot just by the, the start direction and curvature of the shot. You know, usually I'm very, very simple because my path never gets too far offline these days. I'm just looking at the end direction. And if the end direction was too far left, I'm going to do something to open the face for the next one. If it's too far right, I'm going to do something to close the face for the next one. Just constantly calibrating until it's as desired. Once you get the ball flight online, when you get the ball to land on your target, you could look at how it's curving to get there. If you curved right to left to get there, then that's a sign that your swing path is in to out. And if your ball is fading or slicing onto the target, then that's a sign that your swing path is out to in. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness, which is the last thing you want when you're playing golf. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It's used by Olympians, professional athletes, special forces like the Navy SEALs, health experts, and for people like you and me who just want to maintain their everyday health. Now that it's a bit colder out, it gets crazy dry and hydration is as important as ever. Element has a ton of delicious flavors, I've tried a bunch of them, and they just released their new chocolate medley line which allows you to enjoy Element Hot. You've got chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry to choose from, and they're all designed to be enjoyed hot. They also have a no-risk refund policy. If you don't like it, just send it back for a full refund. Now for our special offer for Sweet Spot listeners. If you want to give Element a try and get a free special gift, go to drinkelement.com forward slash sweet spot. Once again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash sweet spot. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else. 
even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. That's most of it, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, pretty much everything gives you face path, strike, ground contact. Where, how did it feel in your hands with the strike? What direction did it start in? Mostly club face orientation at impact. How did it curve through the air? More of your swing path. I mean, you could look at trajectory. If you're hitting the ball really low, then perhaps you're de-lofting the club. If you're hitting very high weak shots, then you know we could be talking about a situation where your hands are behind the ball at impact quite a bit and you're adding loft, which is quite common. So you know, there's the initial trajectory in terms of high or low, but a lot of that does get solved by strike. But yeah, that's when you learn how to read your ball flight properly, and you're internalizing that on every single shot you hit on the range, on the course, that's mastery of feedback. It never ends, yeah. ever. That's just the process I want everybody to go through constantly after each shot. The only thing you can't get without a launch monitor really is angle of attack. You know, you're not going to get really precise numbers for path, but you can tell by the curvature of your good shots what it was with irons. Specifically, with a driver, it gets a little bit more harder to decipher the information because we have gear effect with a driver. But typically, most people are relatively consistent throughout the bag. If they're in to out with one club, they tend to be in to out with most clubs. There are some exceptions to that. Yeah, if you wanted to get angle attack, you might need to jump onto a launch monitor with that. Or, I mean, one of the ways you could look at is where the middle of your divot is. Again, you wouldn't be able to get precise numbers by this, but if the middle of your divot is in front of the golf ball, especially on a dry swing, so without a golf ball, so say you had a divot board or you're making practice swings in a bunker or you're, you're taking divots just in practice swings, making sure the middle of that divot is in front of the ball, that will be a sign that your angle attack is negative, you know, hitting down on the ball. The club is moving down at impact. Yeah, I'm sure we'll do. I don't think we've done a specific episode on angle of attack yet because I think there's a lot of myths there and you're far more knowledgeable about it than I am. But yeah, it's not something that I get it now on my GC3. It's helpful to know that, yeah, on my seven iron, I'm hitting down on it three, four, five degrees where I used to be like zero or one. Did I intentionally try and do that or care about it that much? No, I wasn't sitting there looking at it. It's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, that's nice. I'm hitting more down on it. But with my driver, I think looking at the launch angle helped me self-organize to a three, four, five positive angle of attack because I was just trying to launch the ball higher. Naturally, I got that through a little bit of T height, where it was in my stance, setup, and then just the intention of possibly trying to hit up on it. And that's how you go from zero to plus four, plus five. 
Do you need to know that number? Um, it can be helpful for some people, but I think launch angle with the driver kind of, you know, if you're launching at 12, 13, 14, 15 degrees, that's fine. <laughs> like if whether you know, you're hitting up on it or it was the loft of the club or a combination of both, adding the loft from the angle of attack, if you get to that final number, it's fine. I think where it's helpful, especially with irons, I have this situation a lot in lessons. I actually had it last night, is I'll get a player who they'll hit a fat shot and then I'll ask them what they need to do and they think I need to move my low point farther forwards. And something the angle of attack will tell you is whether your low point is in front of the ball or not. So in this case, you know, this guy was hitting some shots fat, some shots thin. He thought his low point was moving around laterally. But we had a look at the angle of attack numbers and they were very consistent. So it wasn't his low point that was moving around. It was the depth that he was going in. I know this is hard to visualize, but just to say that lots of times players will have their low point in a good place and they just need to focus more on depth control, you know, whether they take a deeper or a thinner divot to control ground contact. But there are some situations where, you know, a player will be hitting up on the ball. It's much rarer than you would think, but there are some situations where players, usually a higher handicapper, they're trying to lift the ball in the air, so their angle of attack will be positive with an iron, which is not good. You know, you're never going to really get consistent ground contacts with that. I mean, one of the signs that you would get if you're doing that, if you're hitting on the upswing with an iron, is that you'd never really be able to take a divot that starts where the ball is resting. That ball then turf you just can't do that if you're hitting up on the ball that's very very unlikely to happen so that's a good sign if you're always hitting fat that's behind the ball or your good shots have zero divot at all that might be a sign that you're very shallow or even on the upswing through impact all right well like i said we need to do a deeper dive into that because i think a lot of people are interested in angle of attack and they don't know how it relates as you know from being on the track man and the quad for so long and teaching players like there's so many reasons why one player can be better with a negative four and someone else needs to be more shallow or deeper there's swing speed involved like if you look at a tour pro mac hughes sent me some of his track man numbers and with the seven iron like these guys are like seven eight nine degrees down it's insane but they've got plenty of swing speed to do that if you took a 20 handicap and told them to be nine degrees down with the seven iron that ain't gonna work probably <laughs> they don't have enough yeah. swing speed to to make that functional and you need to adjust that or even with drivers like you see someone at five degrees down like that's just not gonna work so different matchups as usual is the story that was one of my first experiences as, as an instructor as why everybody should not look like a tall pro is I remember having these beginners with very slow swing speeds and I had the ability to put them into positions like a pro even at impact so these players on camera were looking exactly like Tiger Woods at impact <laughs> with all the forward shaft lean and and I was looking at their ball flight thinking, well, that's not functional. It's coming out at head height and it's just not getting up yeah, in the air. They'll never be able spin. to stop it on the green. Yeah, not enough spin and ball speed. <laughs> exactly. If you launch a, a 7-9 at 13 degrees like someone like Brooks Kepka does, that's fine if that peak height is 200 yards downrange. But if you're just hitting at 80 yards like some of these beginners are, then it's not functional. They need to almost be a little bit more scoopy at impact and, and less forward shaft leaning. Looking at professional golfer benchmarks is kind of like a fool's errand. So for all you launch monitor obsessed people, don't 
don't try and match those numbers because <laughs> you can't deliver the club the same way they do. So yeah, I mean, wrapping up feedback, spray the face, like the best is the basic stuff we've talked about on the show. You've heard us talk about knowing impact location, spraying the face, ground contacts, obviously harder on artificial turf. We like the divot board. There's other ways you could monitor that. And then, yeah, the launch monitors, we did a whole episode on them. They are great feedback tools. Obviously, the more you invest, the better diagnostic information you're going to get, more options. Something like a SkyTrack or a Mevo Plus is going to do a lot more than like a PRGR or the more basic ones. And they are helpful. Like I have genuinely, especially in the winter months, made some really good changes in my golf game because I had a launch monitor that could simulate my ball flight and give me some basic numbers. So yeah, whether or not you want to use the technology, the start direction, curvature, height, and impact location, those are your main guiding lights and you don't need a lot of technology to see those. Let's have a look at course management next. Sure. Not such a winter one, but just a good way of improving your golf course management. I think it could be a good winter one because you know, the way I, I think about course management now is it's a test of knowledge and discipline. And once you kind of know the rules, which aren't that complicated and you can kind of do some learning in the off season, whether it's you know my book, I know you have stuff on it and, and next level golf, accuracy plan, reading Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts, learning from Scott Fawcett, his decade system. There's no excuse for golfers not to know proper strategic information anymore. Like it, it's kind of out there. Once you understand the big gist of it, like the overall theme, then like the little nitty gritty stuff is, is, isn't as important. To me, it's like understanding that tee shots isn't always about hitting every fairway. It's, it's about you know controlling distance and avoiding the big trouble and that golfers are generally needlessly aggressive on approach shots. So yeah, you could use the winter to absorb some information from those resources because that's step one learning the rules. And then step two is, you know, doing some more homework on the courses you play, you know, doing some satellite imagery using Google Earth and then making a plan. But the hard part of course management is sticking with the plan. That's why it's so intertwined. I've had a lot of conversations with Scott Fawcett about this and that the line between course management and the mental game, like there is no line. They they kind of exist like the, the Venn diagram of both of them is is very much overlapping because when you're playing and you're in the heat of the moment or you're in a tournament and there's even more pressure, all of a sudden that plan starts to become harder. Like let's say you had a bad start and you hit one in the trees. All of a sudden you're looking at that little opening in the trees. You're like, oh, I can fit it through there more. Or you start looking at more pins when you aren't playing well and you're like, well, I got to make some birdies to make up for this. That's the hard part. The rules aren't difficult to understand. It's the discipline and execution of those rules that takes the repetition and playing enough to be kind of like that poker player that sees the hand, knows the target, and says, okay, I'm going to hit it over there. They just kind of know it intuitively. That's where the work comes in. That takes a while. Guilty as charged. I still find myself falling into bad habits, starting firing at pins, especially when I'm hitting the ball yeah, well. Yeah, it can be the and you exactly. Get away, you get away with it for yep. a while, right? You do, and that's the bad part. You start getting away with it, and you start doing it more often, and then it just takes that one 
bad shot or two bad shots to wipe out all the, any strokes that you've gained, if any, from the previous attempts. So yeah, I need to get better with, especially front pins. Front pins is a big one for me. And I know even the tall pros fouled this, you know, attacking the front pins and then leaving it short. It just kills your score. There's just no reason yeah, to Yeah, there is. I'd put this in my book, but I think... Lou Stagner had done some analysis with this when he was with Decade showing like the greens and regulation for tour players and mostly elite amateurs as well that when there was a front pin versus a back pin, the green and regulation number went up significantly for a tour pro when there was a back pin because they weren't chasing the front pin as much. It's almost like if you're chasing a front pin, it's as if you've short-sided yourself already. You're trying to squeeze the ball in this small little opening. And all you're doing is shifting your pattern because you're going to have some that go long of that target and some that go short. And another important <laughs> message of course management is that as your handicap goes up, generally your misses are going to be shorter of your target than the better players. So when you chase that front pin, now you're just moving all that shot pattern short of the green. And now you're going to have to chip or pitch to get up and down. And that's harder to do than being on the putting surface. So yeah, it's even for the best players in the world, they think they're so good, they can squeeze it in there. And even they need to be reminded, well, I, I got to go a little bit past this one. I've had conversations with McKenzie about that, where he was in Hawaii this past tournament and he missed a green short from like 60, 70 yards. And he probably got a little too cute with it. There was some more room behind the pin and it spun off the front and it resulted in a bogey. And that's a big deal for someone at his level. It's a lot of money and, and, and difference in how you finish. So yeah, it's just, it's a simple concept, but again, in the heat of the moment, and if you're playing well or poorly, all of a sudden your mind is pushing you to do something different. And you have to say to yourself like, no, I'm going to play the odds. I'm playing for the long game here, which is hard to do and you'll never be perfect at it. I was looking at some of my stats from like the last five rounds. And I noticed there was this huge amount of strokes lost or there was a big red mark were on kind of 50 to 100 yards. And I'm thinking, what's going on there? I'm good at <laughs> yeah. that range. That's, that's my favorite yeah. range to have. Like when I'm on a simulator, I'm dialed in on those things. And then I had a look. I went through some of the rounds and I was looking at, well, where am I losing these? And I was like, okay, that was a front pin and I missed it short. That was a front pin and I missed it short. That was a front <laughs> pin and I missed it short. I think you see the pattern here. So I, basically, I've got these kind of awkward 70-yard ranges that I absolutely love. I'm getting too aggressive with them. And part of that is because I do a lot of work in the simulator. And in the simulator, everything is complete standard conditions, perfect lie, no wind or anything like that. You're never getting grass trapped between the ball and the face. So the consistency of distance is just spot on. But when I get out into the real world, that then increases my expectations. I'm 70 yards away and I think I can knock this to 10 feet, no problem. And you can make the exact same swing as indoor, but you get a couple of blades of grass trap between the face or maybe you hit half an inch fat. And then the distance control is different. Ball launch is different, smash is different, spin is different. It's something I need to be acutely aware of when I'm playing those shots. I need to just give myself... It's not even like they were bad shots, John. They're just 10 feet short of what I wanted. And then all of a sudden I've missed the green. Now I'm chipping, trying to get up and down instead of putting for 15 foot for birdie. So I just need to give that little 10 foot extra buffer 
or, or a little bit more maybe to be extra safe, but that will completely change my strokes gained in that area. Yeah, and that's why I've ever since I started writing about golf 10 years ago, this is one of the topics that always fascinated me just because you know it's something where you can have a tangible effect on your scoring potential without changing your swing. It's more of like a mind game. I find like strategy is really like more of like an internal battle. It's it's a battle between what you want to happen and what can happen. So on those shots, you want to stuff it to five or 10 feet, but you're not being truthful with what can happen, which you said is, yeah, I might catch a few heavy and they're going to land short. And again, let's tiniest adjustments in target can change these outcomes. And what's even more frustrating about strategy is that it's similar to the frustration with like long-term investing in the stock market. It kind of goes at odds with our instincts as humans because we love short-term, we love to analyze things in terms of short-term results. We want those quick wins. So if you decide to fire at that pin and you hit it five feet and make a birdie, you're like, thank God I did that. But if you're playing golf to get better over the long run, you can't play that way if you want to get better and lower your scores. I always tell people, you want to go for it all the time, put the foot on the pedal, play that style of golf, and you should off the tee. I think people should be more aggressive than they think, but not in the approach game, in the wedge game. But I said, go for it. But don't be angry that you're stuck at like a 15 handicap and you want to get down to a 10. You can't have it both ways. So yeah, I find strategy is this kind of like never-ending battle between your ego. It's it's a little bit of expectation management. It's a little bit of mental game. There's some rational thinking and analysis that has to go in, making plans and sticking with them. And you never kind of get perfect at it because we're not robots. Like our emotions will change us on the course and the decisions we make. I still make mistakes too. I don't want to give the impression that I'm perfect with all my targets. I make some dumb decisions too when I lose focus or I'm not playing enough. Like you talked about this in the first episode about some other stuff. If you're not playing enough, strategy is one of the first things to go because you're not you're not used to making these decisions and being faced with them all the time. So you lose kind of like that feel of going through the process of evaluating the shot, the lie, the wind, the elevation change, what's around the green, what's on your tee shot. That's stuff that becomes sharper as you play more and pay more attention to it. But if you're only playing 10 times a year, you're not going to be as perfect at strategy. One of the things that can hurt a lot emotionally when you're using good strategy is those times where you aim at the middle of the green (laughs) and the pin's on the left, and then you just hit a perfect shot and it goes exactly where you want it. I did this a couple of times last round I played and... It sucks. You know it's good strategy. You hit it. It's just absolutely flush. It goes like a laser where you want it to. And you think, oh, if only I'd aimed that one at the pin. (laughs) But you can't think like that. So we always talk about the other side of the strategy where you do that and you hit a bad shot and it goes close. But emotionally, it can hurt as well. But you just have to deal with that. That is the part of good strategy that's going to help you in the long run, even though it doesn't feel like it in the short term. Yeah. And the flip side of that is, well, there's going to be a certain percentage of times where you close the club face down or maybe your path got a little into out and that center target hit a more of a draw or you pulled it and it goes right on the pin. You're like, great. If I was aimed at the pin and had that exact same execution, I'd be short-sighted and dead potentially on this hole. So it goes both ways. But it's, again, like you said, 
your short-term brain looks at the result and you're like, oh, that could have been better. And then you have to remind your long-term brain that, okay, I good execution, good target, get your two-pup par and get out of there. And a lot of a lot of the the fruits and the rewards of good strategy show up in fractional strokes too. You don't see them every round. They kind of exist in this 10, 20, 30 round moving average. So if you have bad strategy, your score might be like three, four, five strokes higher. If you have good strategy, well, maybe you're going to lower at 1.5 strokes or something like that. So it's also hard to get people to buy into that because they want to see the big gains. And those, you know, also another thing about strategy and expectation management related to strategy is that it's a refinement. It's not a breakthrough. So some golfers, I've gotten emails were saying like, you convincing me to be more conservative on approach shots, lower my handicap by five strokes overnight. Like that can happen. But for most players, it's more of like a refinement. It's not a breakthrough. And the breakthroughs in golf will likely come more through like ball striking upgrades, like the, the stuff we talk about there. So yeah, you have to just understand that like you play the odds. It's a refinement depending on where your handicap is and how poor your strategy was before. Could be a five stroke upgrade, could be a one stroke upgrade, but, and you don't have to do it. Also, like there's some people who just like don't want to do it and that's fine too. And just know that, you know, you might not reach your your full scoring potential and you can be okay with that. One of the funniest patterns that I see with amateur golfers, and I completely understand it. I even feel it myself is, so I was playing with my 15 handicap buddy the other day and on one of the holes, he, he said, right, pins on the middle, but I'm going to use a little, I'm going to use one extra club. And what does he do? He flushes it like best <laughs> yeah, strike, ever. best strike I've seen him in like two years. And it goes, I think four or five yards past. <laughs> and we're walking up to the green and he goes, ah, use too much yeah. club. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you, you strike it just half a groove lower and that's absolutely flush. And being 12, 15 feet past the pin is not a bad shot. You've put it in tour range there. I didn't say this, but then you can get, you can, know what happened for the next two three four rounds as he constantly used one club less than he thought he should now because he flushed that one shot so just because you hit one shot past the pin is not a call to now try and bust a lower club for your next 10 rounds it's so funny that and i put myself in this category too because again i'm not fully rational when i react to shots it's so funny that we can tolerate hundreds of shots missed short of the green but then only a few past will like stick out yeah. and really piss you off to the extent that it would get you to play with suboptimal strategy because another reminder that almost every golfer is missing greens on the short side because they don't take enough club they don't strike it well enough for a few reasons and that's one of the big limiting factors of scoring is golfers are just not getting it on the green. They're not getting it to the green, but yeah, it is funny when you hit it over the green, it just feels like a massive missed opportunity for some reason. Cause you're like, Oh, I hit that too well. Come on. And it is even, even like I said, if you hit it just five yards past the pin, there's that internal dialogue saying, ah, I use too much club. I should use next time, uh, less next yeah. time. But I know people say, Oh, but there's all this, all the danger is around the back of the green. I mean, the easy way around that is just to use a club that if you absolutely crush it, will still hit the back edge of the green. So if it's, I, I always get the middle pin 
back of the green, those uh, even the front as well, if I can, as much information as I can. And I will look at the back of the green and say, right, it's 170 there. I know I can't hit an eight iron past that, for example. So I'm okay. I can go at that eight iron pretty aggressively and you never more than flush it or it's just going to be a real rare occurrence. So you don't have to worry about the danger on the back when you use that strategy. Yeah, I would tell people prove to yourself that you've taken too much club. Just try it out for a few rounds. And if you're hitting several ball, like if there's out of bounds behind there, like I understand there's some hole designs, like the fifth hole on my golf course, you cannot go long there and not by much. You've got about, I don't know, five yards behind the green before there's a steep drop off and you'll lose your ball. Yeah. If, if there's a green like that, then yes, you got to be a little bit more careful. I don't think most golf courses have greens like that on every hole. There's some buffer there. So I'd rather you prove to yourself that you're taking too much club, go through the exercise and watch your greens and regulations skyrocket and your scores drop. And then you can make some adjustments. Yeah. It's, incredibly simple, but you'll want to abandon it. It's the easiest way to lower scores, but the hardest thing to stick with, I think. There's a lot of upside and then there's a lot of people who don't want to buy into it because, yeah, you're going to have to accept that you will hit a few over the green and that's okay. You just chip it <laughs> like you would if you missed it to the shorts. Not that big of a deal. Exactly, yeah. Just anyone can look at their stats and see the amount or the percentage that are short versus percentage long. It's pretty much, I can pretty much guarantee every listener here will have a greater percentage of short shots than long. Yeah, it's lopsided. I mean, the shot scope data I had, it's like every handicap level was like literally less than five. It was like five or 4% for every handicap level was missing the ball over the green. And then the rest was distributed between left, right, most of it was short and then some left and right, but like almost no one was going over the green too much. That's a big one. All right. Should we keep moving along here? Is that uh, everything we want to say? And again, we, we've covered course management a lot on the show, so we've got more episodes on this. Does that segue into expectations? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, expectation management is obviously something that I probably hang my hat on the most and explore the most. I love talking about it just because you know, I think most golfers inherently struggle with their enjoyment of the game. I mean, there's there's a reason why one of the most prominent quotes about golf is calling the game a good walk spoiled. <laughs> yeah, expectations is one of the first things that I do in lessons with people. I usually ask them, I'll pick a, a size of a fairway on the range and I'll say, so Tiger Woods, who knows him? And everybody obviously, obviously puts their hands up. And I say, when he was at his best, how often would he hit that? If he had 100 balls down towards that target, how many times do you think he would hit it? And everybody says, well, 99, 100, surely he doesn't miss that target. And then I tell them it's close to 50%. When Tiger was at his absolute best, he'd hit the fairway maybe 50% of the time and everybody is shocked. So that's that's the first lesson for golfers that I give is how difficult this game is, how you shouldn't beat yourself up when you have a bad shot. I wish I knew more about that when I was a kid because I used to beat myself up royally whenever I missed a fairway. Even though for some reason I used to watch lots of Tiger Woods footage, I used to see him on TV every single Sunday and I used to see him hitting out of the trees, yet for some reason it just didn't click in my brain. But I think 
one of the best ways to manage your expectations is to look at the stats of pros, even if you can, players of your handicap, if they're available, like seeing how often a 15 handicap actually hits the fairway. What is it? It's close to 20%, 30%, something like that. How far they actually hit the ball as well. It's never as far as you think. You know, lots of people think every 15 handicaps hitting at 260 and they're not. It's closer to like 200, right? About 180, something like that. Yeah, well, golfers are... I mean, on Twitter, everyone says they hit at 300, but it's closer to, you know, typical male is like 220, 230. Yeah, that no one's hitting it. There's not a distance problem in recreational golf. Let's just put it that way. By the way, I've, I've confirmed, it's actually a fun fact here. The golf is a good walk spoiled has always been credited to Mark Twain, but apparently this article is saying it actually came from a book published in 1905 by Leon Wilson. So maybe someone can double check that for me, but good walk spoiled was not from Mark Twain. To my point on expectation management is that I think golf attracts a lot of people who love to be in control in various parts of their life. A lot of high achievers, type A personalities, whatever you want to call it. And I know my struggles with the game and yours and everyone else's is dealing with all these outcomes that are seem to be random, out of our control, not what we want. And I always felt that I was happiest in this game when my input, meaning how hard I was willing to work, how much I could play, my skills, when that was aligned well with my expectations. So I was most unhappy when I didn't play much, but I expected way too much of myself. So that was when I was only playing 10, 12, 15 times a year, but I thought I could still go out and shoot a 75. You know, in my 20s, that was what would be a very good round for me. But inevitably, I'd go out there kind of rusty, not practicing. And, you know, I'd have a typical five, six, seven hole start where I'd make some mistakes. And then all of a sudden, the day seemed like a failure. It was just like this binary expectation that either I played great or I was going to lose my temper and be unhappy and kind of have a pity party for the rest of the day. And I wasn't really enjoying myself. And everyone who read my book knows about the story with my dad in Florida with the unfortunate incident of me launching a golf club at the cart. And I'm happy I did it. Fortunately, I didn't injure <laughs> I didn't injure either of us, but I think it was an important low point for me where I said, I can't play this game anymore if I'm going to be such a jerk and so unhappy about it. So yeah, I, I think expectation management and finding your version of happiness in golf is a prerequisite for playing better. Because if you don't get it right, if you don't know what reasonable shots are for your skill level, if you don't know what reasonable performance is for the amount of time you can devote to this game, you're just going to hate it. This is not like running or riding a bike or other leisure activities that we can pursue or even playing basketball or some other sport with buddies. Like there's something about golf because we get the number at the end of the day, because it's very hard, because it can make us look foolish, that if you don't manage your expectations properly, you're going to waste a lot of time traveling and being on a golf course and not being happy. I just can't accept that anymore in my life. Like I refuse to play this game and just not be satisfied with just the bare minimum of getting to play golf and being grateful for that. 
I spent too long not doing that. So one of my things I love to do is just find creative ways to connect with different golfers. And as you said, that could be through stats. That could be about stories about me being an idiot, stories from other golfers. Like there's a number of ways to manage your expectations, but if you don't get it right, like I don't think you're going to be successful in this game. And I define success as your enjoyment, your joy level, as well as your scoring potential. Yeah, happiness is not created by the reality as such as as much as it is created by whether reality is greater than our expectations. So one of the things you can do is lower your expectations. And it's it's important for me. I've noticed that very recently my expectations have started to creep up. I had a few good rounds last year that gave me glimpses of delusions of grandeur <laughs> and the, the idea that I can go out and do that a little bit more often. And, and yeah, I've noticed my expectations have started to get higher. So now when I come off, you know, one or two over par or even level par, sometimes I can be pretty upset with myself. Whereas when I'm playing once every two weeks, I really shouldn't be upset with myself for that. So I need to do a little bit of an expectation reset at the moment. Yeah, I think it's it's a never ending adjustment. You know, when I told all of you what happened to me at the US Mid-Am, I went to bed at even par thinking, oh, I can make match play. And then I wake up the next morning and totally poop the bed. And you just, as much as I talk about and try and help other people with it, like it just doesn't, it never ends in this game. And that's why I've kind of fallen in love with the word neutral. Not that I want neutral for some people can imply like, oh, you're not being emotional or enjoying stuff. But I like neutral in terms of expectations, like going into a round or a tournament saying that, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to go through my routine. I'm going to pick good targets. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy this day, but I'm going to be, you know, somewhat neutral in my scoring expectations, meaning that no matter how much I've prepared or how much I haven't prepared, there is this bell curve this disparity of outcomes that are going to happen for no matter how good you are at this game, whether you're a PGA Tour player or a beginner. There's your best scores, your worst scores, and then kind of like that 68% band where everything falls in the middle on the bell curve. And that's why I think it's not productive to go into a round or an event saying like, well, I'm going to play great. I have to play great or I'm going to play like crap. And just being more neutral with the fact that like, I'm going to play, I'm going to do what I can, I'm going to control what I can, and I'm going to live with the results. Then I'm going to analyze them and see if I can do better next time. But as I've gotten deeper into exploring golf and what makes people better at it and happier at it, like the word neutral has become more important to me. One of the other things you can do, this is something I wrote about in the practice manual to improve your expectations is to make practice more difficult. Uh, I think oftentimes we make practice too easy. I think for me, even when I'm using the simulator and it is random practice, which is quite hard, the simulator is easier in terms of you've got more standard lies. Even when you miss a green, short game is very simple on the simulator. And so your strategy can start to get more aggressive. You can start to fire more at pins because you know if you miss it, you're going to get it up and down, which isn't true to real life. So, you know, I need to make my practice more difficult somehow. But for the average golfer, like, again, I go to my 15 handicap buddy. He's a wealth of content for me. I watch him on the range and usually he's flushing it on the range or he's walking off. He's like, yeah, I'm super confident. <laughs> hitting it so well. Or last night I was just killing it on the range. And then he goes on the course and the first one is wildly out of bounds. 
It's like days over. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a big part of that is because by the end of your practice session, you've just been in that block practice mode, ball, next one, ball, next one, ball, next one. And you get into a groove and it's not reality. You know, your unconscious is making these micro adjustments to the last shot and you, yeah, you get into that groove and you start hitting the ball well. But then you take a little break from it, you come back and it's different, which is why random practice is so important. If you want your, if you want your outcomes to reflect reality more, you have to practice more like reality. Now, that's not to say that block practice can't be part of what you're doing. It's a great confidence booster, for example. It can be good for ingraining new neural patterns. But when it comes to looking at your actual shot patterns, here's an example. If I'm block practicing, everything's like a laser, right? It's just straight, 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 straight. Yeah, I'll throw a bad one in every now and again, but it's rare and they're all very straight. Yet on the course, I have more of a draw bias pattern. I have more of a left miss because for some reason, taking that break, changing clubs, my natural swing comes in, which tends to, you know, I tend to close the face down a little bit more. But obviously that doesn't happen in block practice because I'm adjusting. That first time the ball goes left, I unconsciously know what to do to make the face more open and I just get into a groove with it. So start being a little bit more conscious when you're practicing. Start doing more random practice, which means maybe changing targets, going to the left side of the range, then the right side of the range, changing clubs after each shot. It'll make your practice more difficult, but it'll make it much more realistic, which will manage your expectations for you. Absolutely. And I would even further that to changing your the challenge of actually playing golf. So currently, I'll give you an example of how I'm thinking about this. So I'm, I'm currently almost finished with my new book, which is called The Foundations of Winning Golf, doing a little pre-plug here, but it's about it's about competitive golf and not in the sense of like elite, amateur, or professional golf. You know, if you're playing match play against your buddies, you're gambling, you're playing in club competitions or even stroke play events, I'm trying to help people of all levels get better at that. And one of the main points I'm trying to make in the book is having the proper expectations when you compete. And I think one of the benefits of competing is that you are ratcheting up the pressure and the challenge. So when someone tells you you're playing in a tournament and we're going to count up every single shot you hit, and then it's going to be posted on this thing for other people to see, all of a sudden you're going to feel a little bit more nervous and every shot's going to have more meaning and that's going to be harder. And I think if you have, especially as you are a beginner in that environment and you just are easy on yourself and say, hey, I'm a newbie at this. I'm a noob and OB. <laughs> I'm here to learn. And I see a lot of golfers tee it up in tournaments for the first time. You're like, oh, I'm going to play the same as my Saturday morning round with my buddies. And then they just totally blow up and they feel demoralized. And I think if you flip the script on that and you say, well, I'm going to challenge myself to do something harder here. And it's going to be different. Things are going to happen that I don't expect. And I'm going to try and learn from this. So if you have that right expectation, and more importantly, I think the benefit of that, and it's not necessarily for everyone, is that everything else in golf, your first tee jitters, worrying about what other people think of you, all the stuff that all of you email Adam and myself about that you worry about, that all of a sudden is not as difficult as a challenge. Your normal golf is actually more relaxing in my opinion. But this is all possible by having that proper expectation saying, 
I'm going to do something harder here and I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to forgive myself for what happens. I'm going to be patient with myself and I'm going to take those learnings and apply it to the rest of my game. So I think there's a lot of expectation management that has to happen when you change the pressure levels and the challenge, even playing golf too. And I think it's important to do this if you really want to get better at this game. I think it's something that if you are a competitive person, like it's a worthwhile endeavor. And if you have the right attitude, it can be very fulfilling. But as Adam said, making practice harder is important, but also like making playing is harder too. Like you get nervous in front of people at a public course teeing off on the first tee, keep exposing yourself to that or even something harder to that and learn from it. That to me has been, you know, of all the competitive golf I played has been one of the greatest gifts from it is that. It's actually made my normal golf more enjoyable and less stressful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And there is a balance here as well, something we don't talk about a lot of the time. You know, we're always talking about lowering expectations, you know, through through creating more of a challenge. I would say that most people need to be on that end of the bell curve, lowering their expectations through increasing challenge like you said go and play more difficult competitions so you get used to that stress it makes real life easier but there is the other side of it as well you know we're called the sweet spot so to balance that equation sometimes you want to raise your expectations a little bit i wouldn't stay too long in this mode but you know the example that i do myself a lot and i know bryson did this i think at the start of last year was go and play off the red tees. oh yeah that's a great you one know, go and shoot the lights out yeah I'll often, uh, I, it used to be that I'm like, I'm a type of player. No, I want to play off the backs. I want to play off the backs, even though I'm a short hitter. But, you know, a few times this year, I've been like, hey, you know what? I've joined up with a guy and he's he's a senior and he wants to play on the, off the front tees. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go and play with him. I'll talk to him. You know, I want to, I want it to be a social round. So I'll go and play with him. And I go play off the front tees. And oh my God, it's so fun. <laughs> you just shoot the lights out. Everything's drive a wedge, if not drive in the green. And then, you know, you shoot a good score and you come off playing well, uh, you know, feeling good about yourself. Again, you don't want to stay in that mode too long, but it can help if you're struggling with, say you have a boundary, like I just can't break 80, just can't break 80 or 90 or whatever it is. So you can't break par. Go and make things easier for a while. Just so you can prove to yourself that you can do it. It's just a belief creating thing. I used to really struggle when I was under par. I used to blow up, but after doing that exercise a few times and shooting really deep under par, it feels more comfortable when I'm under par now. So there's the other end of the spectrum there. And if you can't, if you really don't want to play off the red tees, the other option is you could play two balls. If you have the ability, if the course is quiet, go out and play two balls, hit a ball, hit another ball, and then pick your best ones. You're playing Texas Scramble, we used to call it in Britain, with yourself. And at the end of that, you're going to shoot a really good round. And it's you hit all the good shots. So it's not as if someone else was doing it for you. It is reality. But it's a good way of breaking through some mental barriers if you have them, specific scoring barriers. That's exactly what was going to be my response is like the, the mental barriers we create for ourselves. They're often surrounded by the different breaking 80, 90, 100, or under par. I mean, some of it is definitely skill deficiency and decision-making, but a lot of it's like, I don't believe I can do this. And when I get close to it, I'm going to clamor up and be be worried by it. So yeah, I mentioned increasing the challenge. And I think your retort is to balance that as decreasing the challenge too. And I know for some 
players listening to this, you're already on the front tees and you can't go any shorter and there might be, have to be some creative solutions to that. But yeah, I think there's, you see this in a lot of other, I forget, there's not that I'm a huge runner, but I remember reading this book on running and just, they're always thought there were these physical limitations and they realized, well, a lot of it was just our minds, like thinking people couldn't hit a certain time. And some people just like broke through with certain mental techniques and like our brains do crazy stuff to our bodies. And I, I know this happens in, in golf quite a bit. And yeah, there's these voices that show up that are like, you can't do this. You can't do this. And one day you hope the ones in my game, I, I finally, the ones showed up be like, you know what? You can do it. Come on, let's go. But you need to expose yourself to some environments that can make that happen. So that suggestion is is really good. Here's a thought experiment, and there are obvious flaws to this. But if you go through every single hole on your home course, you've probably birdied every single one, or at least parred it. If you strung them all together, if you put all your best time you play the first hole, the best second hole you've ever had, the best third hole, if you strung them all together into one round, that would be an absolutely fantastic round. And it was you who did it. So a huge part of good golf is your ability to hit your best shots. Not necessarily hit it better than you can hit it, but hit your best shots in a row. And a huge part of that is mental. You know, there's some things we can't control with that, but a huge part of it is our ability to select our own motor programs, which is largely mental. So it's just a good thought experiment to break through certain barriers as well. Yeah. But, you know, we call this expectation management for a reason. You've got to manage both ends of it. As I now, as I said, I've started to get a little bit too ahead of myself trying to shoot good scores. My expectations are rising. I've got to lower my expectations somehow, maybe making practice more difficult and play more difficult. And vice versa, if I start to find, you know, I'm playing okay and I can push the boundaries a little bit more, let's play a couple of rounds off the red tees, see how low I can go. A lot of it's personal. So, you know, when I look ahead to 2024 and my quote unquote goals for competing, if I go into the year, I'm not the type of person where I say, oh, you're going to go out and win your club championship again and qualify for all these tournaments and play great in them. Like, that doesn't work for me. And I don't think that works for a lot of people either, unless you're just like this incredibly, <laughs> incredibly high performer who has insane skill and confidence in yourself. Tiger teed it up, stepping into his vents in his prime saying like, I'm going to beat all of you. Have fun. That's not normal. And I haven't come across many other great golfers who who think like that. But you have to find what resonates with you the most. And for me, it's the enjoyment, putting myself out there. I want to embrace all the great shots I'm going to hit. I love all the great outcomes. I love to win. I love to finish high in tournaments. But I also want to enjoy myself too. So I try and go and saying like, I will play as much as I can. I'll prepare as best I can and just be open to what happens. And that doesn't put me in a situation where I tee up with so much pressure on myself. Like I'd love to get my handicap down to like a plus three or a plus four. And like I could go crazy with that. Say like, I'm going to play five times a week and practice my ass off. But like, I don't think I'd enjoy it that much, to be honest with you. So I think you need to sit down and really think about what you want out of this game from a performance standpoint, from an experience and enjoyment standpoint, and do your best to blend them all and see what really gives you the most joy and satisfaction. Because if you are playing a lot and you seem to be like on that hamster wheel where nothing's ever good enough for you, 
maybe that is enjoyable for some people. I don't know, but at least there needs to be some introspection and thought about that. So it is a bit of a choose your own adventure, but yeah, expectation management is, I love doing it. I love thinking about it. And I think it's one of the more overlooked things in golf because again, what does the golf world mostly want to talk about? Technique, scores, results. This isn't as popular as some of those other topics. We done with expectations? Yeah, we can. So Adam has golf IQ as another bullet point on our list here. I feel like we could do a whole episode on that, Adam. I'll put you on the spot. We could. Let's, let's try do you wanna, it. Do you want to preview it? Preview what a golf IQ is? It's an all-encompassing thought. Well, it's just golf-specific intelligence, right? It's not – you can have someone who's not great academically, yet they can – tell you everything about golf, ball flight laws and things like that. And then you can have someone, you could have Einstein who might not be able to tell you. Well, I'm sure he'd be able to tell you in pet <laughs> physics, right? <laughs> I hope he would. Yeah, golf IQ is just specific knowledge about golf. And it, it can come in several different forms, but things like the ability to judge a lie and what's going to happen from it or what you should do from a given lie. You know, examples I'll use, there's there's lots of times I'll be playing with someone and they're in a bunker, fairway bunker, and they pull out their hybrid and I'm looking at the lip thinking, I wouldn't be able to get a seven iron over that. <laughs> Partly because I know a ball launches lower in a, out of sand for a couple of reasons, increased friction, the sole of the club doesn't bounce up through the impact interval as well. So the ball will tend to launch about a club lower. But just understanding that, you know, you've got to get this ball up and over that lip and it's probably not going to happen with that loft that you have in your hand. And then obviously see them whack it straight in the lip, rolls back down to their feet and they think, oh, my technique needs working on. <laughs> you think, no, that's an IQ issue, not a technique issue. Coming out of the rough as well, you know, as there'll be times where a ball is buried in the rough and you just cannot, you cannot get anything other than a wedge or nine iron out of it and someone will step up with a hybrid thinking they're going to get that hybrid number one through the rough and then number two, get the ball to launch up and out of that rough with such little loft and it inevitably comes out 50 yards a carry and then runs out all the way and Again, it's a that's an IQ issue, not a technique issue necessarily. Do you have any examples of judging lies? Yeah, or it's just it's it's kind of like I, I view it as like connecting the dots. I mean, you could even throw a wind in there, for example, if you're someone who's played in the wind for a long time and you know like you've got a really strong headwind, you're hitting into it, and you happen to curve the ball a lot. Just if you're paying attention, you're going to inherently know well. My shot seems to curve more into the wind. It doesn't go as far. I'm going to adjust my target and club selection versus the tailwind. You know, we we confirmed a lot of this with the guys from Ping. We did an episode on this as well. Oh, if I play downwind, you know, it doesn't seem to go, it doesn't help as much as the the headwind hurt. So you're making miniature adjust. It's like it's just like these I view it as like these little feels, or if it's colder out. And you know you're not swinging as fast or the ball's not going as far. If it's a little wet, like you're making all these micro adjustments as you step up to the ball. And it's through experience and paying attention and, and you know paying attention to feedback and learning the physics of it. But yeah, there's this connection of the dots that when you step up to the ball, you're in that bunker or you're hitting an elevated shot, pitch shot. 
knowing it's going to scoot out a little bit more. I remember that from Dave Peltz's book. He went through the physics of it. There's just like all these little things that you pick up on as you play more that really any athlete does, an experienced basketball player, a football player, like you hear the great athletes of all time, like talking about, you know, how can I teach people coming up on my team? Like they're letting them know about all these little tiny things. Like if a player moves this way and he's, you know, you're playing a post-up move against a player and you feel the the pressure of his, he's on the back of his feet, you know, you know, you got him like these little tiny things you pay attention to in sport. Yeah. That's your IQ. And then in the moment you're able to synthesize all of this, connect the dots and make a quick snappy decision. Yeah. That that's, that's a lot of things in golf. Cause there's so many, like you can break down the physics of it, the mental part of it. There's a lot, but it all connects together. And it's kind of like the more you play, the more you pay attention, the more you have of it, obviously. Yeah, so judgment of the conditions is a big one. Another part of golf IQ is your ability to identify what you've actually done. From a very basic level, you know, we're talking about our big three. And in lessons, I'm constantly asking a player after every single shot, how was your strike there? Was it toe, heel, fat, thin? What do you think path and face did there? Or, you know, after a bad shot, I'll ask them, what do you think you did there? And in many cases, you know, I've talk about this all the time you'll see a ball fly off left and i say what do you think you did there and they say oh i came over the top of it and we have a look at their club path and we see there it didn't change at all it was just the club face shut down so the ability to identify those things you know obviously helps if you practiced a lot on the launch monitor it helps but just your knowledge of understanding ball flight laws understanding where a ball starts where it curves what it means as to what you've done at impact being able to understand the sound of a shot you know i had my back turned to a client yesterday and i heard this loud snapping sound like a, a twig snapping and i know instantly well that's a shank didn't even have to look so the sound of it the feel of it when a club face twist closed twist open in your hands what does that mean to us the way you struck on the face can you identify that feel which is becoming harder and harder as clubs get more forgiving i do understand that so yeah, I mean, it's it's knowing what to do, but also knowing what you've done as well. You know, understanding, knowing what to do is one thing. Hitting the ground here with a club face square or more open or more closed, depending on what you need, is one thing. But understanding and interpreting the ball flight and seeing what you've done and linking that back to impact is huge. And I see such a strong correlation between the level of player and their ability to do this. It's very rare that I get a scratch handicap it in who hits it off the toe and I say, where do you hit it? And they say, I haven't got a clue. It's, it just doesn't happen with a scratch handicapper. Whereas you see it all the time with 15 handicappers, not only do they not know, often they'll say the complete opposite. They'll hit one, shoot it right as a heel shank and they'll say that they've toe shanked it. So it's, it's a big one. The, the better your identification becomes the the better you are as a golfer i believe it's going to really help and that can come through better forms of feedback as to better understanding as well more more knowledge more instruction so in other words we're essentially saying golf iq is how much you've listened to the sweet spot and how much you have learned <laughs> i mean that's our our goal our mutual goal on this show is increasing everyone's golf iq because i remember you know when i first took up the game just like my overall mindset and feeling on the course i was just way more clueless i didn't know how to react to shots i looked all around the course in fear I couldn't pick targets because my mind was so flooded with don't hit it there, don't hit it there, don't hit it there. 
I didn't have a process. I didn't have any type of set routine going up to the ball. Whereas now we talked about like lies in the rough. Like how many, I mean, how many tens of thousands of shots I've hit out of the rough at this point where you just kind of step up and you know, like, oh, I'm going to shift my weight a little bit forward to take a little bit more loft here and feel more little swing speed at this one. And I know it's going to jump up more. Maybe I can't get it over those trees. So I got to adjust my target because I know how my ball is going to react out of this. It's just all of it together. It's just in you. And this game has so many facets to it, which is awesome, but it's hard to put them all together into one package. And that's why, you know, the inexperienced intermediate, less skilled player does need to be more patient with themselves because, you know, it's one thing to hear us talk about these things and introduce you to these concepts. Like that's step one, getting hopefully better and right information. But step two, three, four, and to infinity is then you kind of, I used the word synthesizing earlier. I think that's a good word to use. To synthesize and then absorb it into your game that takes a lot more. That's a longer process. I've not met too many golfers who can do it very quickly. I think the ones that do are probably on the way above average athletic scale. That's the hard part about this game is that there's a difference between knowing information and really like using it properly. And I guess that would be like my my disclaimer I often say to people, whether it's the show, my books on Twitter, is that you got to be patient with yourself. If you listen to us talk about it for 90 minutes, like that's your starting point. Maybe pick one or two things and run with them, but not all of them. I think there's a downside, maybe I'm saying to golf IQ is you want to increase it over time, but then the actual like application of it, that is separate to me. Hopefully I made sense there, but that was just something that popped into my head. Yeah, it's interesting that they call it the difference between procedural and declarative knowledge. Procedural is you can do it. Declarative is you can also explain how to do it. And you don't always have to explain how to do it. Like we can't explain the mechanics of walking, not to a really high level. Yet we can all walk pretty successfully. Similarly, you can see lots of athletes who've done lots of reps, thousands and thousands of hours who can do anything, but they don't necessarily know how to explain what they're doing. So there is that side of it as well. When I come across an athlete who who is good at doing what they want to do, like they can fade it, they can draw it, they can hit it more toe and heel, but they can't explain how they do it. You don't necessarily need to add more knowledge in that case. But in the cases of players who can't do it and can't explain it, one of the quickest ways to get them there to improve their their self-coaching is to explain to them how to do something or, you know, I go through these different levels of golf IQ. So number one, you need to know what to do to hit a good shot. And that could be as basic as our big three. So can you understand the big three? The next level is then the impact identification. Do you know what you've just done? So that's a next level, you know, understanding the big three is one thing, knowing whether you're doing it or not is another thing. And then the third level is, do you know what to change when one of those things goes wrong? So say, for example, let me give you an answer. This is in as brief as you can, John. If you hit a shot left, what would you do for the next one? I would focus on my trail forearm opening up a little bit at impact or rotating open. Okay. Yeah. So you're doing something to open the face up and you've got an internal cue there. 
to, to achieve that. Yeah. Say you were doing that, say you were producing that feel and it's still going left. What would you do next? Might be an alignment thing. If it's not, if it's not working where I can't change it directionally, then I just might need to accommodate that with aim for the day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you have high golf IQ. So I've asked you, I've given you a problem, ball is going left, and you just gave me two solutions to it. And you probably, you not only have two solutions, you might have 10 different solutions for that ball going left. And maybe the next level, you've even structured or ordered them in your brain as to which one is better for you. You know, for example, if I'm hitting it left one day, I'll just flash the face open a little at address and grip it. If it's still going left, I'll start to weaken my right hand on top of that. If it's still going left, I'll feel similar to you, almost like a karate chop through impact. You talked about your right forearm. I feel my right hand like a karate chop, lowering supination rate if you're, if you're that way inclined. So I have these three different interventions I can make for a left shot, and I know which order I do them in. I know which one is easiest for me to do, which one is more successful, and I know which ones have a bigger effect on the outcome as well. So say, for example, I'm changing my grip. If I weaken my right-hand grip, that has a small effect on changing the left shot. Whereas if I weaken my left-hand grip, that has a much more dramatic effect on the left shot. So it depends what the ball is doing as to which one of those I intervene with. Now, obviously, this is very high-level IQ, but at the very basic level, I would want all my players to develop one fix for every possible fault. And what I mean by that is, do you have a fix for when you're hitting it fat? Do you have a fix for when you're hitting it thin? Do you have a fix for when you're hitting it toe or heel? And do you have a fix for when you're hitting it left and right? There's six things there, six possible things that could occur. Now, you're not going to do all of those. It's very likely you're only focusing on one fault in a round of golf. There's going to be one predominant thing that's costing you. But you need to have those abilities or those tools in place. So people listening now, ask yourself those questions. If you're hitting it left one day, if you're hitting it right one day, if you're hitting it toe or heel, if you're hitting it fat or thin, do you have a fix? The very basic, you need one. At the advanced level, you need two or three different ways of fixing those things that you know work. And you've practiced them and seen them work as well. And then at the more advanced level, you can also structure those in, in a way that you know this one does a, has a small effect on the face. This one has a big effect on the face. This one has a small effect on ground contact. This one has a big effect on ground contact. There's even another level to it. To know how one intervention affects two or more variables. So here's a, a quick example I'll give on this. If I'm hitting it fat one day, I might have five different ways, 10 different ways that I could fix that. However, if I'm hitting it fat and left, I know from personal experience that feeling a later release works to fix both of those things for me. So I can have two faults occur and I can go straight to one solution that fixes both of those. That's like ultimate golf IQ level, I call it. And then if none of it works, you lose your mind and snap your club. <laughs> no, some, sometimes you just have to, I mean, I would say like, yes to all of that, obviously. And then some days you just shrug your shoulders and you say, golf, what am I going to do? Well, yeah, I mean, that's where the practice part comes in. And this is the separation between IQ and 
actual playing ability. You can have someone with lots of golf IQ who still is not great at the game and vice versa. But I would say golf IQ helps you to self-coach. And in the long run, if you have good at golf IQ, it at the very least, it stops you going down bad rabbit holes because we all see bad golf IQ in action. Say, for example, someone toe hooks it and then they try to open the face for the next one that is bad golf IQ. They should fix it in a different order. They should fix the strike first before they start to tweak the face because otherwise you might be raveling, uh, creating this mess for yourself where you've got this open face toe shot and it's just not going to be good in the long run. Well, I think that's really the core of most golfers' frustration is that they'll show up to the course with some type of predominant flaw. Let's say it's a slice and then they just kind of, they have no intervention and they're just kind of white knuckling it through it and nothing's changing and it's just it's very frustrating i know a lot of people play golf that way which is why you get swing lessons or learn ball flight laws and the practice methods we discussed like there has to be some type of way to mitigate that ball flight that's one of the big questions the game asks of us all right well yeah i think that's it right covered equipment checks ball checks collecting stats course management feedback expectations and golf iq so those you can add those to the last episode of ways amazing three hours on brief way <laughs> brief outline of ways that you can improve your game but we still haven't covered everything right? i know i'm exhausted we did it all <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll we'll conclude our series there. And as always, like these are reoccurring themes on the show. We have more in-depth episodes on all of these topics. We'll continue to do more in-depth episodes on all these topics and others. So thank you to everyone who listens to us babble about golf for 90 minutes or more. And hopefully your golf IQs are higher. So Adam, where can everyone find more of this stuff from you? Well, if people really want to improve their golf IQ, then Next Level Golf would be my program that does that. So adamyounggolf.com and look at the improvement products, improvement area, and look for Next Level Golf. That would be your membership that you would join to go through 150 hours of content, I believe. And you can, oh you can dive in and out of it. Yeah, I know it's crazy. The library's grown a lot, but you don't have to watch all of it, obviously, but you can pick the bits that you want. John, where can people find you? Check out fourfoundationsofgolf.com, my book, my video course. And I will again plug my forthcoming book, The Foundations of Winning Golf, where I will help you all be better competitors at whatever level you want to pursue. I appreciate everyone listening. Keep sending your questions, topics for shows, and we'll see you next time with a new episode.